Morning. Hi, we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew. So Matthew 17, we're going to pick right up in verse 1. Um, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. The scripture will be up here on the screen for you. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them. He touched them and he said, get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Verse 9, and they were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them saying, tell, tell the vision to no one except the Son until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. And so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. You have given us so much. And today, God, I pray that you would bless and anoint the teaching and the preaching of your word, that it would be right, that it would be helpful, that it would be edifying, and that as a church, we would grow. Pray, God, that you would have your way in your church this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, the title of today's sermon is God's Glory Among Us. God's glory among us. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been wrapping up chapter 16 of the book of Matthew. And as you, if, if you're here, you'll remember, at the end of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gets pretty heavy, right? Uh, Jesus has been preparing his followers for the reality of what it truly means to follow him. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be mistreated, that he was going to die, He told his disciples that if they wanted to truly be a disciple, they needed to pick up a cross and to follow him. Now, it's it's right that Jesus is being this direct with them. It's right that he's being this forward with them. Because as we know now as Christians, and as we know from reading our Bibles and, and seeing how these disciples lived out the rest of their life, following Jesus is hard, isn't it? It's it's hard to walk this out. And so it's good that Jesus is preparing his followers. In fact, History shows us that these disciples suffered tremendously for their faith. Uh, Peter would be crucified. And in fact, when they went to crucify Peter, according to church history, Peter uh, didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus had died. And so they were willing to crucify him upside down. And so according to church history, Peter was crucified upside down. James, who was up on the mountain, he was beheaded for his faith and evangelism that he did. 
uh, the Apostle John, the third disciple that was brought up on the mountain. As we know, the Apostle John lived out the last many, many years of his life on an island in exile. So Jesus is preparing his followers for hardship. He's been teaching them the reality of rejection. And now in chapter 17, he's taking another step. He's, remember, he's raising up disciples. He's, he's the ultimate disciple maker. And so this is step by step. And now in 17, we see the next step. Jesus unveils another facet of following him. Jesus shows these men his glory. And it's a powerful picture for us. Jesus is there in glory in the midst of hardship. Okay, it's important for you to hear this because kind of the whole rest of the message is going to be in light of this. Jesus, Jesus is there and he shows them his glory in the midst of hardship. Things were difficult. Things were scary. Things were hard. And Jesus is there in his glory. Now, a couple weeks ago when Sean was preaching from chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus promised that this would happen. Remember this, if you would recall, from Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And now today we see Jesus delivering on that promise. Peter, James, and John are invited to see Jesus in his glory. They're invited to worship Jesus as God. And so it's in the midst of this heaviness, in the midst of this uh, difficult ministry. It's in the midst of of decisions that the disciples are confronted with. It's in the midst of them hearing information about Jesus and hearing information about the kingdom of God that is different than what they had hoped it to be. Jesus is revealing the kingdom to be different than they they wanted it to be. From their perspective, you know, Peter's like, why, Jesus? You're not going to—may it never be. You're not going to be crucified, Right? They didn't get it. In the midst of that, Jesus pulls these three men aside, takes them on a mountaintop experience, shows them his glory. These disciples are facing these hard times, but Jesus leads these leaders in training to retreat up a mountain to worship. There's a good, good lesson in there for us, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But Jesus does something unusual here by signaling out, singling out just three people. See, Jesus had 12 disciples that followed him everywhere. Jesus had 70 disciples that often ministered with him, or he would send them out and they would come back. The Bible also says that there were multitudes that followed him at times. But here on this day, Jesus invites just three guys, Peter, James, and John, singling them out, calling them up by themselves, taking them away from the 12. He had never done that before. This is the first time we see that. Now, it happens more often later on in Jesus' ministry, but this is the first time we see it. They hike up this mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. Okay, that's, the literal translation is transfigured. Now, the Greek word that's used there that we translate as transfigured is also translated as metamorphosis. It's the same Greek word. And so we kind of, we all know what metamorphosis is, right? It's when a nasty little caterpillar uh, is transformed into a glorious butterfly, right? It's the same creature. It's the same organism. It's the same thing. We just, over time, see more of its potential and more of what it was created to be as it turns into a butterfly, the same animal turning in from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Jesus is transforming into something more beautiful, something more complete. He was showing these three men his glory. We see in verse 2, Matthew, as he's trying to write down this account, he's, he's searching for words. He says, his face shone like the sun. It says that his garments became as white as light. 
See, Matthew's searching for words for comparison. In this ancient time, there weren't very many bright things. The sun was, well, today is probably still the brightest thing that you can compare something to. So he's like, it was like the sun. His clothes were like the whitest light, the purest thing. Clothes often weren't very white, even clothes that were supposed to be back then, because there's no bleach. There's nothing to even bleach the fabric when it's made. So having pure white clothes was, was rare and expensive. He's saying, no, it was like white as light. His face shining like the sun, choosing the brightest and purest imagery imaginable. See, this is glory. This is a man trying to describe, trying to explain God's glory in human terms. There's simply not adequate words to do it. Now, the idea of glory, that, that concept, would not have been foreign to the disciples, though, with their Jewish mindset. See, their paradigm for understanding God And their paradigm for understanding God's kingdom and God's nature was 100% formed by the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, glory is this frequently used term that describes the presence of God. And so Matthew knew what he was trying to describe. He just didn't have the words to describe it. In the Old Testament, we see glory as this tangible but beyond description kind of nature that's only ascribed to God. And so these three men go up the mountain with Jesus and they encounter glory. And as they're there, face shining like the sun. Don't even know what that means. Clothes shining like the brightest light. Kind of don't understand what that means. In the midst of that, their minds are blown. Peter has something to say about it. (laughs) Look at verse 4. In the middle of that, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here, right? Like, really? Of course it's good. Jesus brought them there, you know. He says, if you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So later on, the Apostle Mark writes about this account in Mark chapter 9. And he says, literally, this is what he says in Mark chapter 9. It's in verse 6 if you want to check it out. It says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> it said, he's like, yeah, Peter said that he, he didn't understand what he was saying. He didn't, he didn't know what he was saying. And I picture that. It's true. I mean, he's seeing this. Who's ever seen that before in their life? And he's just nervously talking like, God, I'll do this or whatever. I mean, it's good for us to be here. I mean, who says that? But to his credit, what Peter's doing is he's offering to cover and protect and even venerate the presence of God's glory. He's seeing something going, this is special. And so it would have been all he knew how to do, right? Build a tabernacle so we can visit God. That's how Israel knew God, right? In tabernacle, through the veil in the temple. So Peter's offering to build sort of another holy of holies where humanity can come, be with God. That would have been his thinking. That would have probably been his mindset because he was used to, and all of ancient Israel was used to, and relied heavily on the temple system. Now, the temple system was the center of Jewish culture and the center of Jewish identity. And the temple offered many things. It offered hope for Israel, right? Knowing that God was near, that the Holy of Holies was there, it provided confidence in Israel. Now, confidence in Peter's time was super important because, remember, Israel was occupied by Rome. And so the temple represented this confident hope that they had that God was still near them. The temple system also offered security for the Jewish people. The priestly system provided assurance that everyone could be safe by the actions of the priests. There, there was a, a team of, of people who were working on their behalf, sacrificing, making sure the temple was just how God wanted it to be. 
temple system also offered freedom for individuals. The system meant that people could focus on finance, on trade, on family. They could, they could concentrate on culture rather than having to focus so much on worship all the time. Nobody had to stand before God on their own. They had a system of priests that would do that for them, for, for better or for worse. But that was, that was how the religion was acted out in Israel at the time. So Peter is offering to set up a system here on earth probably a lot like the existing at the time temple system. And he's saying, hey God, let's get all this glory, let's put it into a tent, and then we can deal with it in how we know how to deal with it, right? We've got rules, we've got laws, we even have a system of people in place. We could kind of manage this glory in a way that we understand, in a way that we can control. Now here we are in the fourth verse of this big long passage, and already there's a person trying to set up an earthly system to manage and control access to God's glory. And isn't that what we tend to do, right? We like to separate the religious from the ordinary in life. It offers us freedom. When we, when we were, if we were to encounter the religious outside of our safe religious setting, it would be just mind-blowing. We'd be like, wait, that doesn't belong here. That belongs over in the church category, right? Let me move it to its right place. You know, our little like religious OCD-ness comes out. That's what's happening with Peter. He's like, oh, we're on a mountain. We're following Jesus. All of a sudden, glory of God. Let's put that in its right place. And we have a tendency to do it. How easy is it for us to justify, for example, double standards in our life using the same system? If I keep my Sunday standards for Sunday and the rest of the week standards for the rest of the week, it's easy to feel like we can show up at church on Sunday and fulfill our weekly obligation. And we can easily fall into that kind of a pattern, separating the sacred from the ordinary. But see, in our passage today, God will have none of that. He's saying, no, my kingdom on earth is not that. Verse 5, it says, while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God interrupts Peter in mid-sentence. <laughs> He's like, just stop it. Just stop trying to figure this out. Stop trying to put this in a tent or a box. Stop trying to control this, right? God brings this glory cloud, covers them all. Now, the glory cloud is showing Peter that Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle built by men. He's like, can you build a tent like this, Pete? You want to build a tent for me? How's this for a tent? How about I house my glory in this glory cloud? See, God makes this defining statement right out of the glory cloud, this voice confirming Jesus. And this is the second time that God has done this. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. God first said these words at the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized. And it's a powerful picture that we see here. This is a history-changing moment. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we look at these events, as we look at what happened, we have to ask ourselves, what should we be seeing in this passage today? What does God have for us today as a people? We believe that the Word of God is living and active, and um, I, I don't ever want to be the kind of teacher that just teaches you something that you learn and you go home and you're like smarter about the Bible. There's something for us in here that's going to edify us and change us and cause us to mature. And so we have to ask, what is it? God, what do you want me to do? What, wh- how are you trying to change me in light of your Word? Now these clues that we see 
There are clues that we see in here that would have been obvious to the disciples. It would have been obvious to the Jewish mindset. They would have popped out to them, but we need to dig a little deeper in order to understand them. So we're going to look at just a few of kind of the details of the story. The first is, are the opening words. Now, when Matthew starts out, right at the very beginning of the first verse, verse 1, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them high up on a mountain by themselves. Just those words right there would have popped out in the Jewish mind. Something big is happening here. Any Jew in Jesus' time would have recognized this from the Exodus story. There are details in there that are just too obvious. Now, ancient Jews didn't have a Bible. They didn't have this kind of access to the Scripture like we do. So they would have memorized it. There'd be at least someone in the family that had the Old Testament memorized, had the law memorized. And the Exodus story would have been one of those stories that would have been repeated over and over and over again, especially every, you know, at the Passover time. And I mean, they would have known it very, very well. And the details of the story are very, very significant if you've ever been to a Passover ceremony. So to the Jewish mind, every little detail that's being brought back up in Matthew would have popped out. Very familiar with the story. The story of the Exodus is the story of God through Moses delivering Israel from slavery to Egypt. And so what we're going to do now, let's look at some of the details from Exodus 24. Exodus 24, starting in verse 12. It'll be up here. It says, Now the Lord says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Verse 15, it says, Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. There's a bright light on this cloud on a mountaintop. After six days... Verse 18, Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up the mountain. You see that language there? Jesus' face shining like the sun. The glory cloud covering the mountain. Israel saw God's glory as a consuming fire. The importance of six days being a part of the story. See, Matthew is grounding this account of Jesus' transfiguration in the bigger story of God. Matthew is connecting the glory of Jesus with the glory of the God of Israel. Matthew 17 is a continuation of God's story throughout history. It's a consistent story. So we see later on in the Exodus story, we see these things said about the glory of God. Exodus 33. Moses says, I pray you, show me your glory. And we're going to stop right there. First of all, that was a gnarly request for someone in the Old Testament to be asking God, show me your glory. But what's even crazier is the context of that statement. Moses had been sort of like negotiating with God. He's like, well, who are you going to send? God's like, I'm going to send you. He's like, well, who's going to go with me? I can't do this. And God's like, I'm going to be with you. Moses is like, well, you better be with me. because. And, and God's like, I am going to be with you. He's like, well, you better be. He's like, I am going to be with you. And he's like, show me your glory. Okay, it's like this. It's crazy. Show me your glory. God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock, 
and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face you shall not see. It's a wild request from Moses. Show me your glory. And what's so wild about it is the entire worship system of Israel was set up to protect humanity from God's presence. See, God is holy and nobody can see God's face and live. God's presence was behind a thick veil in the Holy of Holies. And one guy, one day a year, was able to go in there. And that didn't always turn out so good for the guy that went in there. And so it became a tradition. They would tie a rope around his foot because in the presence of God, occasionally that guy would drop dead. And no one could go in there to get him, so they'd like, you know, it was a nice little convenient tool. Like, well, I'll just pull him out. He didn't make it, you know. Just drag the guy out. That's how holy God is. Moses is like, show me your glory. It's consistent with what we see in the book of Revelation, in the, in the presence of God in heaven. Angels with six wings. With two of their wings, they're covering their feet. Because in the ancient times, their feet were the filthiest part of the body. Wearing sandals, walking on dirt where animals' droppings were and all that kind of thing. So the angels would would cover their feet, symbolizing like, this is holy ground. We're covering our filthy feet. With two wings, they would cover their eyes. Because no one could look upon God and live. And they shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're not coming up with smart ideas about tents and tabernacles, right? They're not saying it's good for me to be in your presence, God. See, there's nothing in the presence of God's holiness that is appropriate or makes any sense. In the presence of God, in the presence of the holy God, when we see God for who he is, all we can do is worship. The only right response to the presence of God is worship. But God loves Moses' request. I love this part. It's a request that God loves to answer. God answers Moses' request by hiding him in a crack of the rock and letting him see his afterglow, right? God passes by, and then there's like this afterglow experience after God passes by. See, this is the Old Testament. What God is doing in the New Testament is a continuation of this story. God is drawing people ever closer to himself by revealing himself through Jesus Christ. Because God is once again delivering his people from slavery, just like he did in the Exodus. But now through Christ, he's delivering people from slavery to sin. God is also once again revealing his glory. But now he reveals his glory to all people through Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle John was on that mountain in our story today from Matthew 17. And listen to this. Look at how he describes God's glory, but now from through New Testament eyes. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who himself is God and is the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. See, what God's doing through Jesus, bringing sinful humanity to himself, what God's doing through Jesus is revealing his glory to humanity. What happened on the mountain is a more full glimpse 
of God's glory. It's, it's like a metamorphosis of God's glory. There's a further look of God's glory that Israel had never seen. And the details of our story today were not lost on the disciples. The six days, the mountaintop experience, shining like the sun, the glory cloud, they were witnessing the beginning of a new exodus. That's what they would have saw in their ancient minds. This is a new exodus. It's happening again. The first exodus, God delivers his people from slavery to Egypt using Moses. The second exodus, God is delivering us from slavery, delivering all people from slavery through Jesus Christ. And as a Jesus follower, through Jesus and through this new covenant, through this new exodus, we are the full beneficiaries of Moses' desire to be with God and to be led by God. Jesus is the full and final expression of the love of God to his people. And so the main theme that sticks out in all of Matthew and in all of the New Testament, really, the main theme is that Jesus is the crux of the storyline of all of Scripture. Jesus is the main point of Scripture. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament exposes and explains Jesus. This is super clear in our passage today in verse 3. It would have been very clear to the ancient Jewish mind. Verse 3, it says, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, the presence of Moses and Elijah signals something huge is happening to the Jewish mind, that Moses and Elijah would show up. See, in Judaism, Moses and Elijah are the heroes of God's story. In the Jewish mind, Moses and Elijah, they were like the guys. Like, they, they carried a lot of weight. They're like the heroes of the story. In fact, Jews then and Jews now even refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And Jesus then represents the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And here they are talking with the glorified Jesus. The law and the prophets coming together with Jesus. And it's like this validation of Jesus' place in this grand story. Moses, Elijah with Jesus. But they're not the same. Jesus is glorified. It's a powerful picture. Old covenant, new covenant, meeting, kind of effectually like shaking hands. See, Moses' presence tells us that Jesus has, fulfills the law. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus is our substitute, we know. And this, listen to this. This is what the Apostle Paul writes about us, about who we are because of what Christ has done. Christ being the ultimate fulfillment of the law causes us who are in Christ to be this. Romans chapter 8. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there for just a second. How many of you guys are Christians? How many of you guys believe that's true? Listen to that statement. Listen. Look at this. Fresh eyes. Forget that you memorized it in VBS when you were a little kid. Look at it for the first time. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I believe a lot of us need to hear that and be reminded of that today. There's no shame. There's no shame in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from shame. There's no fear in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from fear. You're not identified with what you do. You're not identified with what you eat. You're not identified with what you look like. You're not identified by how much money you have. You're not identified by how, how many good decisions you made in your life or how many bad decisions you've made in your life. In Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.
That could be a whole other sermon. But. Verse 2. Because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Amen. The law of Moses was, not, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. And He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead now follow the Holy Spirit. See, we cannot be saved by following the law. We cannot follow it well enough. You can't be saved by your good behavior. You you can't earn pleasure. You can't earn points. You can't earn standing before God based on what you do, based on your performance. Your standing before God is 100% dependent upon who you are in Christ. We're either in Christ and we're therefore fully accepted and forgiven by the Father. We're able to fully walk in freedom from sin and confess our sins. Or we're not. See, it's it's completely fulfilling the law. God sends Jesus to live perfectly and to be our substitute in death. God loves us so much that He sent His Son to do this on our behalf. And so now we both have this righteous standard of the law, which is still there. Jesus didn't abolish the law. But what God has done is He sent a substitute. He's now given us forgiveness. Jesus fulfills the requirement of the law for us. So we no longer stand guilty before God because of our sin. We now stand as forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. That is why confession of sins... I know we don't like to talk about confession of sins in our culture because it's gnarly and whatever. But confession of sins is absolutely vital to the life of the Christian. Why? Because you can be forgiven of your sin. Why would we hold on to it? Why would we be embarrassed of it? It's like, man, no, Jesus came and died for me. I'm, I'm over, I'm, I want to give that up. We hold on to it for some reason. Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law. We're now forgiven of our sins. See, that's what's going on here. Moses is acknowledging God's fulfillment of the law. Now, Elijah's presence is something different. Elijah's presence tells us that Jesus is the full prophetic revelation from God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets said and did. Jesus, in other words, Jesus fully explains God. We can know something more about God, and we can know God himself through Jesus. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, the first five verses. says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he had inherited a more excellent name than they. See, this is, a, this is an echo of God the Father's confirmation and affirmation of his son that we see in verse 5, where God says, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. See, on the mountaintop, God, 
gave the disciples this amazing, this supreme and glorious moment of clarity. It's like they, they got the, this veil was removed or this fog lifted, however you want to think about it. And they were able to see Jesus. And it's like, whoa, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It was like this moment of clarity. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. To whom else does God call his son? To whom else does God say, I am pleased with him? Listen to him. God is saying, listen to my son Jesus. He perfectly fulfills and explains prophecy, the law, explaining me. Peter, Peter grew to be an old man before he was crucified upside down. And he reflected on this mountaintop experience years later. He would write letters to these churches that he planted in Asia. In the book of 2 Peter, he's recalling this and recalling now the clarity that he had about this in this letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Notice Peter doesn't mention that God had to interrupt him in order to say that, right? Verse 19. Because of that experience, so Peter's saying, because of that, in light of that, I saw God in all of his glory. I saw his face shine like the sun. I saw this supernatural thing that humanity hadn't seen in person since the Exodus story when Moses went up on the mountain with God. I saw that. And he said, because of that experience, we now, all of us, we have a greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. See, Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies. He explains Scripture. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, Peter said. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the, da- the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets are moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. See, in hindsight, as an old man now, Peter's looking back and he's able to see that they had an incredible moment of clarity on that mountaintop. The fog lifted and they saw Jesus in all of his glory. And he says, be very careful. Pay close attention. He's not saying pay close attention to what I saw. He's not saying pay close attention. The Holy Spirit moved and, you know, let's, let's follow the Holy Spirit around. No, he's saying what? Pay close attention to the Word of God. If you want to see Jesus more clearly in your life, he's saying, I saw it in person. I saw his glory. If you want to see it in your life, pay attention to this book. It is good for you. It will do you good to spend time in this book. Study the Scriptures. All it did is confirm the Scriptures for Peter. It wasn't like this secondary thing. It wasn't like this additional thing. It pointed him all back to God's consistent story. There was total clarity about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. To the Jewish minds, that's a huge deal. You're standing there, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and God the Father, what he's saying to them, he's saying, not Moses, not Elijah, forget about those guys right now, Jesus. Jesus, he fulfills that. They help explain it, but Jesus fulfills it. 
This was a worship experience that brought clarity about the glory and the supremacy of Jesus. The whole purpose of this experience was to give clarity to Jesus' glory and Jesus' supremacy. Church, listen to me. This is a big deal. I need this in my life so bad. I need these worship experiences where I see Jesus clearly, where I see his glory, where I see his supremacy. Because nothing else in life, nothing else in Scripture makes any sense if Jesus isn't clearly seen in glory, in power, in supremacy, is he? We need these, don't we? We need these, these, these experiences of clarity. We need these worship experiences where we're clear. The understanding before God and man is clear. I'm in my right place. Like Brian prayed right during the, the set, first set of worship here. You know, it's so easy for us to, to sit on the thrones of our heart. We do that because we take our eyes off of Jesus, or maybe we don't take our eyes off of Jesus. Maybe it's just become foggy and we don't see Jesus in all of his glory. But either way, it's easy for us to put ourselves on the throne of our hearts and put ourselves on the throne of our lives. We need occasions in our life where the fog lifts and we clearly see Jesus. We need these moments where Jesus is clear. Remember the Apostle Mark said that Peter didn't know what he was saying when he wanted to set up those tents. But I don't know, there's something there to me. Maybe Peter was kind of onto something. Peter was wanting to set up tents and, and just stay there for a while. Like if we set up tents, then we could go visit. Or maybe we just, like camping, maybe we just kind of rest in the presence of God. Like I don't want this to be over yet. Just kind of being with Jesus, being with the glorified Jesus. And I feel like as a man, as a husband, as a father, this is something in my life that I need much, much more of. I need to camp out in the presence of the glorified Jesus more often in my life. I am a better man. I am a better husband. I am a better son. I am a better father when I see Jesus clearly. I've been realizing that as I've been studying this passage, it's been very convicting for me. I need more of it. I need to orchestrate my life so that I have these moments or hours or times with Jesus. We need to create opportunities to draw into the presence of Christ and just linger there. And many Christians refer to this as devotional time. We do this because we believe, we devote time to Jesus. We try to do it every day. We try to do it a couple times a day. I want to I, I be reminded of who I am in the morning. When I wake up, I don't want to wake up with a cloudy Jesus, right? And a, and a, and a smart Billy that's going to solve all the world's problems, you know? That's a recipe for a bad day for many people. Right? I, want to, I want to remember who I am in Christ. And so I need to see Jesus clearly in order to do that. Right? I have to orchestrate that. I have to devote time to that. We do this as Christians because we believe that when we draw near to God, He draws near to us. The Bible promises that. We do this because we believe that Jesus walks amongst His churches, as it says in the book of Revelation. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Jesus walking among His people, walking among the churches. I want to be with Jesus. I, I, I want to be in His presence. I want to experience Him moving among the church. And I have to take myself off the throne and my problems off of the agenda and put Jesus there in order to experience that and be there. We devote time 
devotional time to God, but we do it because we believe that Jesus is with us always and he never leaves us or forsakes us. And because our lives get crazy and out of whack, things don't go as planned, sometimes things get foggy. It becomes foggy. It becomes unclear. We don't see the glory of Jesus. And we need to push through the fog sometimes and be with Jesus and see Jesus clearly in his glory. This is a vital part of the Christian life. We must set aside regular time to be with Jesus in his word. Remember, Peter said it will do you good to spend time in the word. That is true. That is ancient advice that is true today. But we must also set aside time to worship Jesus in his glory. And that's one of the things we do. Part of the liturgy of our church is the second set of worship. Every single Sunday, we set aside a chunk of our service time to worship. Right? We put rugs out here, carpets out here on the floor so that we can assume a posture of glory. When Jesus is glorified, we see Jesus in his glory. This is the glory position where Jesus is glorified and we're not. It is good and it is right for us to be on our face, on our knees, before God. Right? It, it's good and it's right for us to assume a posture of worship, to assume a posture of glory. And, and so we, we make space for that. We provide carpets for that. And we provide this time after we preach the word to just camp out in God's presence. We believe that God inhabits the praises of his people. We know that where two or more are gathered in, in the name of Jesus, that he is there with us. We know that Jesus is walking amongst the churches. And listen, there's no question by faith, there's no question by scripture whether Jesus is present to us. There's just, he just is. Jesus is always present to us. No question by faith or by scripture. What is questionable, however, is whether we are present to him, even in church. And so we set aside the second set of worship after hearing about Jesus during the preaching of the word so that we can pursue Jesus and press into the truth that he is glorious and that he is present to us. We have to press into that. We have to submit ourselves to that, to the glory of God. And so... It's a little gnarly, but I got away with it in first service, so I'm going to say it again. I, I, don't, I, just, I don't condone, like, leaving right after the sermon. I understand you have the bathroom. That's cool. That's one thing. But, like, I, like going, getting lunch, like, after the sermon, why would we leave? Let's camp out. Let's take that time to camp out in the truth about Jesus in his presence. We want to be intentional to be present to Jesus. He's present to us. Why wouldn't we respond he said, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Why wouldn't we, we lay on the carpet and say, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your goodness. That beautiful ancient request that Moses asked, that God was like, you know, that's a pretty gnarly prayer request, Moses, but I'll do it, right? Guys, Jesus in all of his glory is near. He's not far. Why am I making such a big deal out of this? I think the second set of worship is absolutely vital for us as people, as Christians, because I believe that the presence of God is transformative. Presence of God changes people. If you don't believe that, read the Bible. The presence of God changes people. I expect, and I know because I've experienced personal change in the presence of God. I also believe that a moment in the presence of God answers a lifetime of doubts. 
A moment in the presence of God answers a lifetime and, and, and extinguishes a lifetime of fears. A moment in the presence of God extinguishes a, a lifetime of false beliefs about ourself. If you're doubting your faith, if you're doubting the supremacy of Christ, if God in all of his glory is foggy to you, spend time in the presence of Jesus. It would be a shame to be a church that doesn't press into the presence of Jesus. It would be a shame to call ourselves a church if we didn't linger in the glory of God. Amen? Because the mountaintop experiences, all mountaintop experiences are few and far between. The men's retreats, the women's retreats, the, my case, like the, the trips when I go to a Zion National Park and I just experience the glory of God. Like, I get emotional. It's just, it's so thick and it's so good and it's so rich. But I can't live in Zion National Park, right? I don't even go there this time of year. It's so gnarly. But we don't plant fruit trees. No, nothing grows there. Right? All of the fruit in our lives grow in the valleys where we experience hardships, where we have to deal with other people. Part of the reason I like going to Zion is because there aren't that many people where I like to hike there. <laughs> it's just me and Jesus, you know? But we, we, we come down off the mountain. It seems like those experiences are few and far between, and, and it's like hard to remember them. But the valley is where the fruit grows. The valley is where all the orchards are. The valley is where we plant the crops. Nobody grows fruit trees on the mountaintop. But see, this is the rhythm of the Christian life. There's going to be mountaintops experiences, but there are going to be a lot of valleys in our life. 1 Peter chapter 5. The Apostle Peter knew something about valleys in life. It says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter's saying, hold on in the valley. You can experience the glory and the presence of Jesus in the valley. You don't have to run away from the valley. You don't have to like peace out and find a mountaintop. You don't don't have to go and buy a cabin or seclude yourself or live in some remote bunker. You can experience and enjoy and press into the person and the glory of Jesus in the valley. Peter says God is going to strengthen you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to make you steadfast. As the psalmist writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Remember, he's with us. He's walking amongst the churches. The story of Christ brought Jesus to a cross. All the story of Scripture, the glory of God, the power of God, the authority of God. But on the other side of the ledger, you have the sinfulness of man and the separation from God because of our sin over and over and over. And so the story of Scripture leads the hero where? To a cross. Talk about a valley, right? The hero of the book is led to a cross where he's sacrificed and he dies. See, the cross precedes greater glory. The cross was necessary. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, in the midst of hardship and heaviness, we can experience the glory of God. Now listen, some of you might have attended, like me, attended church for your entire life. 
You might have just this amazing theology. You might be so theologically good and theologically strong that you've got websites and, you know, you're, you're trying to find heretics in the church and stuff like that. But listen, you're getting ripped off if the glory of Jesus Christ is cloudy to you. If you're not experiencing the presence of the living God. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Church, we have to see Jesus clearly to find rest in him. We have to be with him. We have to sit with him. We have to recline on him like the apostle John did. We need to experience the glory of Jesus, pressing into him in worship, being available to Jesus as he's available to us. Cry out and ask for clarity. Church, today let's not leave this place until we have known the glory of Jesus. Let's not leave this place until we've cried out to God, show me your glory. And listen, if you're doubting today, I want to challenge you to cry out to God. Show me your glory, God. Because a second in the presence of the living God will put your doubts to rest. Let's offer to God the praise and the worship and the glory that he deserves. For his glory is among us. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we thank you so much for your amazing sacrifice on the cross. It is so good that we are here, God. (laughs) It's so good that we're here. What can we say in light of your goodness and your holiness? It is so good that you are here and that we are here. God, lead us by your Holy Spirit now. We pray, God, that you would pour out your Spirit on this place. That we would be alive to the glory of Jesus Christ. God, that you would bring healing that you would bring comfort, that you would bring direction and vision and joy, that you would bring hope. God, we rely on you for all of these things. You alone are good. You alone are good. You alone have the words of truth. We love you, Lord. We love your presence. Be glorified now. In Jesus' name, amen.